You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of child killer Robert Black. sight of your child is a heart-stopping moment. It's a universal fear that we've all experienced at some point. Those situations in busy shops where you lose sight of the top of their head, or when they duck behind some equipment at the playground, or even when you give them permission to play on the street and they don't immediately run home when you call. Most of these situations only last for that moment, though. A few seconds of terror before your child returns to your sightline or emerges from behind a slide. Thank God, the relief. But sometimes the moment of relief doesn't come. Your child doesn't turn the corner and come up the drive. In the UK today, one in 200 children go missing. That's higher than the amount of missing adults reported. Of course, most of these kids are found within 24 hours either by parents or police, or they simply come home themselves. A tiny percentage do not, though. And if you're part of that tiny percentage, the rarity of it means nothing to you. This aberration of likelihood has destroyed your world. And although more kids are reported missing today than ever before, it's a possibility we have all lived with for generations. We all fear the strange man in the van. These crimes, simply because they are so rare, all present in much the same way. A child snatched off the street, gone in the blink of an eye. What's perhaps more frightening is the fact that it can be hard to tell if any one disappearance is a singular event, or if there's perhaps an unknown connection between abductions. A single perpetrator. In April of 1969, 13-year-old April Fab cycled her way to her sister's house in the picturesque country town of Roughton in Norfolk. But April never made it. Neighbours saw her on her journey, but she disappeared without a trace. She'd left her own house at 2pm to cycle the two miles to deliver a birthday present to her brother-in-law, a packet of cigarettes. In their book, The Murder of Childhood, Ray Wire and Tim Tate outlined how, at 2.06pm, a man on a tractor saw April passing by, and a few minutes after that she'd stopped to talk to friends, who were with their donkey. Then, April's bike was found at 3pm, on the side of the road, only about half a mile from her home. There was no damage to it, or any sign of a struggle. Searches for April began shortly after the discovery and continued for days. Door-to-door inquiries were conducted and a helicopter was called in to view the area from above, but nothing was ever found. On May 21st, 1973, Christine Markham left home to walk to her school at half eight in the morning in Scunthorpe, an industrial town south of Hull in eastern England. On her way there, Christine disappeared. She was abducted during a typically busy hour of the day, with a lot of traffic and people around in the area. She's never been found. Five years later, 13-year-old Jeanette Tate went missing on August 19, 1978, in Aylesbury, in the southwest of England. Jeanette disappeared while out doing her paper round, and while out cycling her route, She stopped to chat with friends as she pushed her bike up a hill. After that, Jeanette went off ahead of them. Five minutes later, after the girls crested the hill themselves, they found their friend's bike and her papers scattered in a ditch. There was a tiny window between 3.27 and 3.32 that Saturday in which Jeanette could have been snatched. Authorities were quickly notified and searches began. In the small, quiet area, 
all the cars that had been there at the time were identified and tracked down, but the searches and inquiries got nowhere. Jeanette's body was never found. Then, on the 12th of August 1981, in Ballanderry, County Antrim, a rural part of Northern Ireland near Loch Ney, nine-year-old Jennifer Cardy set off on her bike from her house to a friend's. She'd gotten permission from her parents to make the trip, and after all, they lived in a quiet area. Her friend's house was close by, and it was a route she'd taken several times before. But Jennifer never arrived at her friend's house. Her worried parents went out looking when they were told Jennifer was missing, and soon enough they found Jennifer's bike. It was shoved into a hedgerow along the road Jennifer would have taken to her friend's. It looked like there'd been an attempt to hide the bike in the shrubs. It wasn't just dumped on the ground. It was an intentional placement. Police in Northern Ireland undertook an extensive search and were assisted by the British Army, but there were no further leads. A few strange cars had been seen in the area, but police were unable to trace them. The details were passed on to authorities both in the Republic and in England. Nearly a week later, on the 18th of August, a jogger spotted the body of a young girl in the lake at McKee's Dam, a fishing pond, in Hillsborough, County Down, which is about 10 miles or 20 kilometres from Ballanderry. It was Jennifer. The poor girl had been sexually assaulted and then dumped into the lake where she had drowned. After that, with no further leads, the case went cold. On the 30th of July 1982, at Coldstream, Scotland, about an hour and a half south of Edinburgh, and on the border with England, 11-year-old Susan Maxwell told her mother she wanted to go play tennis with her friend. Her mother Liz agreed, saying she could walk the two miles to the court. Susan was the eldest of the children in the household and had two half-siblings. She was mature for her age. At 4pm that day, Liz decided she'd go and pick her daughter up. It was hot, and no doubt Susan would be sweaty and tired after walking so far and playing tennis for an hour. But Susan wasn't at the tennis court, nor was she on any of the roads leading home. She wasn't with her friend she'd been playing with either. The other little girl had arrived home after their tennis match already, alone. Liz Maxwell rang the police and a search for the young girl started immediately. Cornhill-on-Tweed, the area where the Maxwells lived just south of the border, was a very tight-knit community and a number of people had seen Susan that afternoon. She was wearing a yellow top and matching shorts and carrying her tennis racket. The last sighting of Susan was at the bridge over the River Tweed at about half four. The bridge Susan had crossed was on the A697, the main route from the area to Newcastle, the next large city to the south. But after that, there were no further reports of sightings of the young girl. Susan was unobserved for only a minute or 90 seconds, and in that time, that tiny window, she was gone. She had simply vanished into thin air. The borders area that Susan had lived in was a rural one, full of farmlands, forests and fields. A huge search was organised and every ditch, rubbish dump and stream was gone over. Tracker dogs were dispatched the night she disappeared. There were public appeals and a reconstruction was filmed, but nothing was found. Then, on the 13th of August, over 230 miles away, Susan's body was discovered in a ditch at a lay-by off the main road near Loxley, south of Utcheter. Police advised the family not to view the remains, and Susan was identified by dental records. She was dressed when she was found, but her underwear had been removed, folded, and placed under her head where she lay. After the horrific discovery of Susan's body, local sex offenders in both areas in Nottingham and up north in Scotland were checked up on to see if they had any involvement in the murder. There were also further house-to-house inquiries and roadside operations were held to try and identify further possible witnesses. Yet nothing more was found and a suspect was not identified. 
The following year, on the 8th of July 1983, in Portobello, a seaside suburb of Edinburgh, five-year-old Caroline Hogg asked her mother if she could go to the playground for a few minutes before bed. Caroline was the youngest of five children in a blended family, and at that stage of the summer, Scotland was experiencing a heatwave. Caroline and her family were lucky in that, in this little holiday town, they lived only steps from the beachfront. That Friday, Caroline had been at a birthday party and was in high spirits. The playground that she wanted to go to was just beyond the primary school she attended, just a few seconds' walk from her home. The other seaside attractions of the promenade beyond that, however, were strictly off-limits to the little girl. The journey to the playground was one that Caroline had made a number of times, and Caroline had agreed to just a few more minutes of play, so Annette, her mother, sent her off with the usual instructions that Caroline was to go no further than the playground and was not to speak to any strangers. Fifteen minutes later, Annette sent her son to call Caroline in, but she wasn't at the playground or on the road. At half seven, the boy returned home and told his mum that he'd not found his little sister. Annette swung into action and began a search herself, but 45 minutes later, there was still no sign of Caroline, and the hogs alerted the police. Quickly, police began a widespread search for the missing five-year-old, and local people joined the efforts searching all over. A number of people came forward with sightings of Caroline. She'd been seen with a dishevelled-looking man. He was described as being aged somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, about 5'10ish, with shoulder-length hair. The man had three or four days' growth of a beard on his face and was wearing large, cheap glasses with tinted lenses. This man had been seen watching Caroline in the playground, holding her hand and letting her have a go on the merry-go-round at the nearby amusements. But after that, there was nothing. The man could not be tracked, and no sign of Caroline was found in the area, despite one of the largest organised searches in Scottish history. Then, on July 18th, ten days after Caroline disappeared, her body was found in a ditch alongside the A444, just north of Birmingham, at Tearcross. 300 miles away and over a five-hour drive from her home. Caroline was identified by a necklace she'd been wearing. She was otherwise completely naked when found, but cause of death was unknown due to the condition of the body. There was, however, evidence to suggest that she had been kept in an enclosed space for some time after death, possibly in the boot of a car. Because of the similarities between Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg's cases, a joint task force was set up. Both girls had been abducted from Scotland, and their bodies had been discovered within 20 miles of one another, but hundreds of miles away from their homes. It was a task in and of itself to try and collate the information that had been gathered in both investigations. To complicate matters further, the information had been stored differently. The investigation into Caroline Hogg's death had all been entered into a database, but Susan's was not. Her investigation remained analogue, with hundreds and hundreds of cards and memo books and pieces of paper making up the investigation. It made it nearly impossible to cross-reference the actions taken by the two investigation teams involved. On March 26, 1986, Ten-year-old Sarah Harper went missing from Morley, a small market town just south of Leeds. At 8pm that night, Sarah had volunteered to go to the nearby shops for her mother to get some bread. She also took two glass bottles with her to get the deposit money back. Sarah walked the few minutes to the shop. She picked up the bread and bought two packets of crisps for herself with the deposit money before leaving the shop. But Sarah never made it home. Her mum Jackie began to worry almost instantly when Sarah hadn't returned. It was just a few minutes' walk and by quarter past eight, Sarah should have been well home by that stage. Sarah's older sister Claire was sent to see if Sarah was hiding in the lane eating treats, but she was nowhere to be seen. 
Jackie packed the kids into the family car and began driving around looking for her missing daughter. At 9pm, after a futile search, Jackie rang the police. The area that Sarah was taken from was sort of off the beaten track, in the sense that it wasn't a high-traffic area. Generally, only those who lived and worked in the area went there, and there was no real passing traffic. Police thought whoever had taken Sarah likely had a reason to be there, and so the area was canvassed closely, looking for any information on who might have seen the girl, or perhaps the vehicle she'd been taken from the area in. House-to-house inquiries resulted in better information for the police to go off of. In particular, there were a number of unidentified or strange vehicles seen in the area. One was a white transit van parked nearly directly outside Sarah's house. Other inquiries revealed that a number of people had seen a strange man, and his description was given to the police too. The scruffy man had been wearing glasses and had messy fair hair, which was moving towards balding. The first sighting of him was at half six near the Harper house, and then a man matching the same description was seen yet again an hour later getting into the white van police had been told about. The same man was reportedly also seen inside the local shop, the one Sarah had been in. The initial hope provided by this good information did not pan out, though. Three weeks later, on the 19th of April 1986, a dog walker in Nottingham found a body floating in the River Trent. Sarah had been found 80 miles from home. At autopsy, it was discovered that she had gone into the river alive and suffered horrendous injuries, particularly to her genitals, before her death. The water taken from her stomach also told investigators that, rather than being thrown directly into the River Trent, she had initially been dumped in the River Sore and drifted to the River Trent at Wilford, ten miles or so downstream. Police investigating Sarah's murder asked all other forces in England and Wales to identify anyone likely to be a suspect in such a case and find out where they had been the night of the abduction. If these known offenders couldn't account for their movements that night, the team asked that the other forces follow their suit and search the men's homes and vehicles for any further evidence. A description of the white transit van and the shabby balding man was sent to each force. Several thousand people who had convictions for indecency or who had a similar vehicle were checked, but nothing turned up. Four years after the abduction and murder of Sarah Harper, another girl was taken. On the 14th of July 1990, in the small village of Stowe, about an hour's drive south of Edinburgh, six-year-old Mandy Wilson was headed for a friend's house to call on her to play. A neighbour watched as she skipped down the road, but noticed that, as the little girl passed a white van which was parked up on the path, Mandy seemed to stop. The neighbour, the local postman David Herks, saw Mandy's small feet standing next to those of a man, and then the little feet disappeared. The van sped off. Herks called the police, gave them the registration of the van and a description. The van was still in the area when police stopped it and pulled a man who said his name was Robert Black from the front seat. In the back of the van, gagged with sticking plaster and tied into a sleeping bag, was a terrified Mandy Wilson, minutes away from suffocating. Robert Black was born on April 21st, 1947, to single mother Jessie Hunter Black in Falkirk, Scotland. A few months after his birth, Jessie gave Robert up for adoption, though that process was never completed, and he was eventually placed with a foster family a hundred miles to the north, the Tulips, in Kinloch Leven. His foster father, Jack, died when Robert was five years old. Like many parents of the time, physical punishment was part of Margaret Tulip's discipline strategy. Robert was spanked and hit with a belt, and he would also be locked into a small room if he became unmanageable. He got into trouble a lot, and according to author C.L. Swinney, Robert was apt to pull his pants down and show girls his privates from a young age. 
As he got older, he became aggressive and would fight with other children, usually ones younger and smaller than him. He got into trouble in school and had very few friends. He was known as Smelly Bobby Tulip. When Robert was 11, Margaret Tulip passed away too, and after that, Robert found himself in the Reading Children's Home in Falkirk. With the death of everyone Black had considered family, his aggressive behaviour escalated. He and two other boys were reported to have attacked a girl walking on her own and attempted to rape her while he was resident in the children's home in Falkirk. After that, Robert was moved and was sexually abused while in an orphanage. At 15, his time in care came to an end and he was sent off into the world to try and make his own way. He got a job as a delivery boy and found a room to rent. But while working there when he was 17 years old, Robert tricked a seven-year-old girl into following him into an empty building, saying he had kittens inside. This little girl in black were the last two people left in a park that night. Robert had spent the evening watching the kids play in the playground. After he led the girl into the old air raid shelter, Black strangled her and then pleasured himself over her prone body. Black then left her lying there, not knowing if she was alive or dead. Fortunately, the girl had only passed out, and after she awoke, a passerby found her. She was able to identify her attacker as Robert Black to the authorities. Black was arrested and held in custody for four weeks before his court appearance in order for reports to be prepared. His psychiatric report outlined that the young man appeared to feel appropriate guilt for his actions that Black wasn't suffering from any psychiatric problems and that this attack was likely an isolated incident. On the other hand, however, the probation report prepared outlined Black's background and said that he might benefit from psychiatric care due to a disturbed personality. In the end, Black was found guilty for indecent assault, but he served no jail time for the attack. According to author Robert Church, it appeared that the judge had relied solely on the report prepared by the psychiatric services. After this incident, Black moved back north to his birthplace of Grangemouth, near to Falkirk. There, he molested the nine-year-old daughter of his landlord. This was never reported to police, but Robert was forced to move on. He ended up back in Kinloch Levin. There, he molested the seven-year-old daughter of the family he had rented rooms from. The abuse lasted a month before the girl told her parents. This time, police were notified. And so, at the age of 21, Robert Black faced three charges of indecent assault. He was found guilty and sent to serve a year in Borstal. After his release in 1968, Robert moved to London and began working in pools. He'd been a good swimmer in his youth and had enjoyed lifeguarding when he lived in Scotland. According to Ray Wire, Black had been asked to resign his position in one of the pools in London after a ten-year-old girl accused him of touching her inappropriately in the pool. Black was taken to the police station after the accusation was made, where his previous record was discovered. But this forced resignation was the only result of his actions, and the incident was never officially recorded. After moving around for a bit from flat to flat and job to job, Black eventually found a more permanent home and a permanent position. Black became a regular at a number of pubs, particularly those where darts were played, and though he never made any close friends per se, he made a number of acquaintances through this social outlet. That was how Black met the Rayson family. He became friendly with the couple and in 1971 took up residence as a long-term lodger in their attic. He was described by the Raysons as an ideal tenant, if not a bit strange. The Raysons had five sons and two daughters, and their kids thought Robert was a bit odd too and smelly. Robert had never been conscientious about his personal hygiene and didn't wash regularly. But they all got on, and Black would live with them for around two decades. His job situation became more stable a few years later in 1976, when Black got his driving license. 
he began driving a van for a delivery company called PDS, which delivered the paper posters used for billboard advertising campaigns. He drove all over the country, and Black liked the job. He was an okay driver and enjoyed the solitude that long-haul drives involved. PDS delivered all over the UK and even did some work on the continent. Black liked the long runs and was noted by his colleagues as always liking to take the lesser-used routes, avoiding motorways. Sometimes Black spent more time living in his work van than he did in his lodgings with the Raisins. In 1987, PDS underwent a management change and, after briefly losing his position with them, Black was brought back to work. This time, though, the drivers for the company would be engaged as independent contractors. And this was something that Black didn't mind. He was less at the beck and call of the management. Up until the point that Black found himself in the back of a police car in Stowe in Scotland, he had had very little contact with the police. Although his early years seemed to indicate that Black was developing into a sexual predator, the only convictions he had had in the 23-year period since his move to London in 1967 to that point in 1990 were relatively minor. In fact, they were mainly road traffic offences. He'd been charged with speeding, the theft of a car, and driving with no insurance. There was one violent incident, a charge of assault against a man, presumably a fistfight. These convictions had resulted in little more than fines and probation, and in each case, his previous convictions in Scotland had not been noted in his police files. And so this was the man who had been hauled out of a van with a six-year-old girl tied up in the back of it in July of 1990. A balding man in his forties, with a scruffy beard and strong body odour. He was taken to the local police station and arrested for the abduction of Mandy Wilson. According to Wire, Black said after his arrest, quote, It was a rush of blood. I've always liked young girls. I'd just seen her and got her into the van. I tied her up. I only touched her a little. I wanted to keep her and go somewhere like Blackpool, where I could spend some time with her. End quote. In his first police interview, Black talked freely about his background, his upbringing, his one and only girlfriend, his abuse his attraction to young girls and his obsession with orifices, which included sexual self-experimentation. Black's attic room in London was searched, as well as the van. Police discovered that Black had a fixation with child abuse imagery. He had stored 110 magazines, 58 films or videos of child abuse images, and also had five scrapbooks and loose photographs. Some of these pictures were of children at the beach, taken surreptitiously by Black himself. But the majority of the quote-unquote collection was obvious images of abuse. Black had gone abroad to buy some of the materials. Denmark was one such place where, between 1960 and 1970, child pornography was possible to produce legally, so long as Danish children were not abused in the process. Police discovered that Black was working towards the goal of a trip to Thailand as well. The search of Black's work van, seized as evidence in Scotland, uncovered twine, sticking plasters, and girls' clothing. On the 10th of August 1990, Robert Black appeared in court, charged in relation to the abduction of Mandy Wilson. Police outlined the evidence they had to the court, and a psychologist, Dr. J.A. Bard, told the court that Black, in his opinion, would remain a danger to children. Despite the huge amount of evidence that police had against him, Black and his legal team decided to get their own psychological assessment done. If perhaps they could get another medical professional to disagree with Dr. Bard, it would assist in Black's defence. It was at this point that Ray Wire, the co-author of the book The Murder of Childhood that has been referenced a few times so far, actually steps into this story. Wire was at the forefront of the treatment of sexual offenders in Great Britain, and he met with Black while the charges against him for the abduction of Mandy Wilson made their way through the courts. But Wire's assessment more or less agreed with Dr. Bard's previous finding that Black was a danger to the public. Unlike Bard, though, Ray Wire managed to strike up a rapport with Black, 
and later Black would describe exactly what had happened to Mandy Wilson that day. Black told Wire about how he had spotted Mandy walking on the street that morning. Black described how he had already had thoughts about abducting a girl in another nearby town earlier that day, and when he saw Mandy, he decided to see if he could follow through with that impulse. Black described how he had waited until he saw the six-year-old Mandy walking on the path, and how he had pulled over on the road ahead of her. Black had then opened the passenger side door of his van, and swung the door wide open so as to block the path. When Mandy reached the van, she was forced to stop. At that point, Robert bundled her into the van, warning her to be quiet and sped off. He took an indirect looping route from the village as quickly as possible, and when he was beyond the houses and people, Black pulled the van over. There he had tied Mandy's arms behind her back, covered her mouth with a large plaster and touched her. Then he shoved her into a sleeping bag and tied her in. For some reason, Black decided to drive back through the village to get to the nearest A road. That's when he'd been spotted by police. It was all over in minutes, and even then, in that short time, Black had sexually abused the little girl. Black and his legal team decided that, given the evidence against him and the second unfavourable report, Black would plead guilty. Black's lawyer said that his client had never once before acted upon his attraction to young girls, that he'd never intended on hurting Mandy and had only carried out the abduction on the spur of the moment. This notion was entirely rejected by the judge, the Right Honourable Lord Donald MacArthur Ross. Black was sentenced to life imprisonment. By the end of the month that Mandy Wilson had been taken by Black, a conference was held between the various forces with missing girls who were suspected of having been abducted. Officers from a number of regions in England, as well as from Scotland, Ireland and Wales, gathered to try and assess if Robert Black might have been responsible for the disappearances in their jurisdictions. The conference was chaired by Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police, Hector Clark. He was the officer who had been in charge of the Catherine Hogg and Susan Maxwell cases. Along with Deputy Chief Constable Clark, John Stainthorpe from West Yorkshire Police would also take a leading role in the investigation into Black. He had been the officer in charge of the investigation into Sarah Harper's murder. Those cases made up three of five that were identified as possibly being linked to Robert Black. Another was the case of an attempted abduction in 1988. In April of that year, 15-year-old Teresa Thornton spent a few hours with friends at a park. She was with one girl and two boys. They all headed home at around 6pm and the small group caught a bus closer to their housing estate. When they got off the bus, they split into two pairs. The boy walking with Teresa, 16-year-old Andrew Beeson, recalled later, quote, I continued to walk with Teresa. At about ten past seven, just before the junction of Forster Street and Hartley Road, I saw a dark blue transit van waiting to pull out and turn in the direction of Radford Boulevard. The reason the van caught my attention was because it had a large number of dents in the bonnet. At the traffic lights at Radford Boulevard, Teresa and I went off in different directions. The reason I didn't walk with Teresa so near home was because she had a boyfriend and I didn't want to be seen with her in case he got the wrong idea. We had planned to meet again at the cut-through. End quote. After that, the dark blue beat-up looking van had turned at the top of the road and returned to the stretch of road where Teresa was walking. It parked a few yards ahead of her on the opposite side of the road. A man had called out to Teresa, who looked much younger than 15, asking if she could help him with the car. She ignored him, but then after she passed the van, she was grabbed from behind. When she screamed, the man put his hand over her mouth. Teresa bit him. When he let go of her face, she bit his arm and screamed again. When Andrew heard the screams, he ran back towards where he had left his friend and saw Teresa's legs kicking out from the open driver's door of the van, underneath a man. 
Andrew ran towards Teresa and screamed, quote, Get off of her, you fat fucking bastard, end quote. And with that, Teresa's attacker fled. In their shock, neither of the kids got the registration plate. Andrew recalled that the van left so quickly and took off at such a speed that the tyres left marks on the road. The description of the van and the man, down to the glasses he was wearing, matched Robert Black. So while he was safely away in prison for the abduction in Stowe, police from the investigations into the deaths of the other girls who had been abducted visited Black to see if he had any information that might be relevant to their cases. In particular, Scottish police who had worked on Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg's disappearances, which had been treated as linked for some time, went to see the prisoner. Police in charge of Sarah Harper's murder investigation were also interested in speaking with Robert Black, although it wasn't yet clear if her case was definitely linked to the other two. Black was happy to talk to the investigators about all manner of things, from his previous convictions to what he liked to masturbate to. But he shut down completely when police asked for specifics relating to the other three murder cases. He would not talk. Ray Wire was also eager to speak with Black and continued to meet with him after he had been sentenced for the Stowe case. Wire was fascinated by this paedophile who had managed to stay under the radar for so long, and Wire wondered if he might be able to convince Black to face up to the despair and destruction his behaviour had caused. The psychologist was quite sure that the abduction in Stowe had not been this man's first. But again, Black skirted conversations, happy to talk about his fantasies and childhood, but never coming close to telling Wire what he had actually done. With the possibility of a confession now put firmly to rest, police began the painstaking task of reconstructing the last decade or so of Black's life. They needed to see if they could put him in the areas of the abductions when they occurred. It was discovered that Black had been paid for a delivery which brought him near to the site of Susan's abduction around the same time, and there was a receipt for petrol for his van just south of the town right before Susan had been taken. The pay records and petrol receipts put him only a mile from Portobello the day Caroline had been abducted. He'd also delivered posters to Bedworth, a town only ten miles from where her body had been found in the Midlands. This delivery took place four days after Caroline's disappearance, which lined up with the post-mortem evidence that indicated that Caroline had been kept for a number of days before her body had been dumped. The records once again confirmed that Black had been in the area when Sarah Harper went missing too. In fact, Black had made a delivery just metres from where the young girl was last seen. But by May of 1991, little more than the records putting Black in the areas concerned were found. The police submitted the file to the Crown Prosecution Services and they decided to go forward with the entirely circumstantial case a year later. In March of 1992, police announced that charges would be forthcoming against Black in relation to a number of unsolved murders. And then the next month, Black was served with ten summonses relating to the abductions and murders of Suzanne Maxwell, Caroline Hogg and Sarah Harper and the attempted abduction of Teresa Thompson. The case against Black was going to be complex for a number of reasons. Firstly, there was a huge amount of evidence generated by each individual missing persons and then subsequent murder investigation relating to the three girls. All of that had to be handed over to the defence team, which was, at a very basic level, a logistical nightmare. The files were huge and dispersed over so many investigation locations, and so a building was located in Newcastle-upon-Tyne and rented out. Two entire floors were taken up with documents from the investigations in order to allow Black's defence team view every single document in all the investigations relating to the charges he was facing. Secondly, the crimes Black was accused of had occurred in two jurisdictions. Two of the girls had been abducted in Scotland and transported to England where they were killed. 
There were also questions about how the cases would be run. The Crown obviously wanted the three girls' cases to be heard together, as they were part of a series of murders, whereas the defence team wanted Black to face the charges in relation to each case one at a time. Finally, there was the legal issue of whether or not evidence of what had happened with Mandy Wilson in Stowe would be allowed to be presented before the court. The defence argued that this would be highly prejudicial, whereas lawyers for the Crown argued that the crime committed against Mandy was so similar that it simply could not be ignored. Each of those issues had to be hashed out and argued before any trial could occur. In pretrial hearings, it was determined that Black would face all charges together, and as the majority of the crimes had occurred in England, that would be the venue for the trial. Lastly, the jury would indeed hear what had happened to Mandy Wilson. Finally, on the 13th of April 1994, Robert Black appeared before Mr Justice William McPherson in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Leading the case for the Crown Prosecution Services was Mr John Milford, who was assisted by Toby Hedworth and Roger Cooper. Black's defence team had undergone a change just weeks before the trial was due to start. Alan Rawley, who had been heading up the defence, had another trial, which was likely to overrun in another court. Mr Justice McPherson declined to put Black's trial date off. So, with just three weeks to catch up, Black's new team was put in place, led by Mr Ronald Thwaites, Queen's Counsel. Mr Milford opened the prosecution's case by outlining the circumstances of each crime, asserting that they were carbon copies of one another, and that the jury would find that the evidence proved that Black had committed those crimes as part of a series. As recorded by Robert Church, Milford stated, quote, These three offences are so unusual, the points of similarity so numerous and peculiar, that it is submitted to you that you can safely conclude that they were the work of one man. The Crown alleges that Robert Black kidnapped each of his victims for sexual gratification, that he then transported them far from the point of abduction and murdered them. End quote. Milford's speech lasted five hours. Firstly, witness statements relating to the disappearance of Susan Maxwell were read to the court what had happened the day she went to play tennis and had never come home, who had seen her in the area and what Susan had been like. A pathologist also gave verbal evidence of his findings at Susan's autopsy. The following day, a forensic scientist described the contents of Black's van when it was searched after Mandy Wilson's abduction. He went through all the items inside and stated that he had examined them for DNA evidence, but nothing of significance was found nor was any of the forensic team able to link Black to any of the bodies of the other girls. They spent six months going through all 1,800 samples included in the evidence, and still, they'd found nothing. Then the court heard from Black's former employer, Eric Mould, who had once been a director at PDS. He was asked to describe Robert Black, who he recalled had a quote-unquote personal hygiene problem. Other former bosses said that they had been reasonably friendly with Smelly Bob, as he was known, though he was a bit unusual. One recalled that, along with the normal sleeping bag that drivers on long runs would stow in the back of their van, Robert was the only one who had installed curtains over the back windows of his van. The sort of work that Black had done for PDS was described, the runs cross-country and up and around the border of Scotland. It was explained how payments differed depending on the trip and that the petrol cards were issued to drivers. A former colleague of Black's, Derek Wilcox, described to the jury how he had been slated to take the run-up to Scotland in July 1982, but he'd had a family emergency. When he informed PDS that he couldn't go, he'd been summarily dismissed, and Black had taken the run instead. The statement of the man who found Susan Maxwell's body in the lay-by near Loxley was read by Mr Milford to the court also. Six days into the proceedings, the focus of the trial turned from Susan Maxwell to the disappearance and death of five-year-old Catherine Hogg from Portobello. Caroline's day was outlined for the jury, that she'd been at a party and had come home still wanting to play. 
She'd gone to the playground a few metres down the road for 15 more minutes before she was to go to bed. Then the court was told how she'd been seen with a scruffy-looking man in the amusements, a place completely out of bounds for her. They'd been seen by a number of witnesses, and the man had been seen near to a transit van. The description matched black. The following day, the statement made by the man who discovered Caroline's body at the side of the road in Leicestershire two weeks later was heard. Sarah Harper's story was begun on the eighth day of the trial, the 22nd of April, and the court was told about how she'd left her house to make a two-minute walk to the local shops on a dark, dreary Wednesday. She'd made her purchases, but had not made her way home. Witnesses described seeing a strange van and a scruffy man, balding with a beard in the area at the time. And similar evidence was given from the man who had discovered her body while out walking his dog three weeks after Sarah was taken. Evidence was also heard from the pathologist who conducted her post-mortem. Sarah had been brutally raped, she had been knocked unconscious and then thrown into the river, where she drowned. Two days later, Teresa Thornton took to the witness box to tell the jury herself of her brush with the scruffy, bearded, smelly man with a van. Black's defence team had taken the strategy of probing witnesses about discrepancies in their statements. In Teresa's case, she was asked if she had tailored her testimony to fit with the story she had sold to a tabloid paper, which would run after the trial concluded. Ms Thornton acknowledged she'd made a deal with the paper but dismissed out of hand the idea that she had told the court anything less than the truth of what had happened to her. The Raisins, with whom Black had lived for nearly 20 years, were also called upon to tell the court what they knew of their lodger. One of the sons in the family recalled finding pornography and images of child sexual abuse in the older man's attic room, as well as a child swimsuit. He'd been shocked by the discovery and had run from the room frightened. John Rayson, an elder son, told the court that Black had often visited him and his family when they moved out of London. They'd eventually settled in Burton-on-Trent, within the general area that the three girls' bodies had been found. The prosecution case finished up with testimony from police involved in the various aspects of the wide-ranging investigations. The officer who spoke to Black while en route to the police station after his initial arrest told the court that Black had admitted to him that he'd been attracted to young girls and that he'd only touched the girl he'd taken a little bit. The investigation into Black's movements were outlined, which, according to the prosecution, placed him near to the scenes of the crimes while on duty delivering posters for his employer. Evidence was heard that on the 29th of July 1982, Black had set off on a Scottish run for PDS. He drove from London to Glasgow, dropping off posters, and then over to Edinburgh to drop off more, and after that south to Newcastle and Leeds. All this, according to his fuel records, was completed by 5pm the next day, Friday the 30th of July. A white transit van, just like the one Black was driving on that run, was seen by witness Gillian Drummond on the bridge over the River Tweed at Coldstream. It was quarter to five on the 29th, just 15 minutes before Susan Maxwell would disappear. The same van was seen by another witness, Frank Daly, but this time it was at the Layby near Loxley, where Susan's body was found. Black claimed for driving that route, along with its £88 bonus, on the 6th of August. He was the only driver for PDS to make the Scottish run between the 29th and the 4th. Petrol records from a BP card registered to Black traced him and a grey Ford Transit from Northampton on the 7th of July 1983 and on to Hull, followed by a stop at Newcastle that afternoon. After that, Black bought more petrol near Berwick-on-Tweed on the road north to Scotland. The next record of his movements that day put him in Glasgow. To get there, he would have had to drive through Edinburgh, not far from where Caroline Hogg lived at the time, in Portobello. Black was back in London and home by the 9th. Then he had two rest days, and after that, he went on a run to Manchester. He would have taken his usual route, which avoided the motorways, the A444. Evidence for this route was also supported by records of a stop to make a delivery in Bedworth, 
only ten miles or so from where Caroline was found. It was also discovered that Black often made deliveries to a company in Ackroyd Street in Morley. He was there often enough that he'd taken to parking his van in the company's yard and sleeping in it there. He'd made a delivery there the night Sarah Harper went missing. He was logged by the company as having delivered his posters around 6pm after hours. Further, petrol records showed that he had not headed home, but back along his route. Witnesses saw his van driving near to Nottingham. On the weekend of the 23rd of April 1988, Black was the only PDS driver who bought petrol for his work van, a blue Ford Transit. His travels put him near Radford, where Teresa Thompson was attacked. There was also CCTV from a bank next to where the attempted abduction had occurred at the time of the attack. A dark blue transit van was recorded on the footage, parked just as the teens had described. The registration was not visible, nor was the attack, but it supported the story and provided yet another circumstantial link to Black. Lead detective Hector Clark described how it was only after his arrest for the abduction in Stowe that Black had come to police attention. His name had never come up in relation to any of the previous investigations. He wasn't living in any of the areas involved, and though Black did have a job that took him to those areas, his previous criminal record was not such that it would have been flagged for their attention. When the prosecution finally rested, it was the day before the May bank holiday weekend, and so there would be a long break for people to rest and think over what they had heard before the defence would begin their arguments. Mr Thwaites' opening speech focused on the failings of the police and their investigations over an eight-year period and asked how, when they had been unable to make a case for so many years, could the jury reasonably rely on the evidence now presented to them. He asked, quote, How many reputations have been broken during that time? No one knows, but you may think this series of cases reeks of failure, disappointment and frustration, brought to an end, the police hoped, by the capture of Black, who was brought before you as the murderer for all seasons. End quote. He argued that Black was to be taken as a sort of scapegoat for all child murders on the basis of one incident. Black did X, so he must have done Y. The evidence offered over the next number of days for the defence mainly consisted of witnesses who had offered differing information in the wake of the abductions of the young girls in an attempt to imply that there were other explanations for what had happened, trying to pick apart the circumstantial evidence that the police and the Crown Prosecution Services had so carefully untangled and stitched together. Different cars were introduced, a red car or a blue, a Ford or a Datsun, different men, older or wearing a rain mac, anything to try and raise doubt in the jurors' minds but the defence case was a much shorter affair, just two days. Then the closing speeches began and on the 16th of May, Mr Justice McPherson gave his summing up. He told the jury that they must not convict Black on the basis of dislike of him or because they knew of his previous conviction for abduction. They must base their decision on the evidence offered against him in court. The evidence relating to the three murders themselves indicated that they were linked. The similarities were more than mere coincidence. He reminded the jury that it was Black's right to decline to take the stand in his defence and that no inferences could be made from that. The defence's case boiled down to the assertion that yes, Black was a terrible human being, but the police were trying to tidy up unsolved cases by blaming him. They had not considered other suspects, because there weren't any. Just because he was a, quote, wicked and foul pervert, end quote, did not mean he was a murderer. Once the summing up was concluded, the jury of six men and six women were sent away to begin deliberations the following morning. They would review the evidence over three days before returning on Thursday the 19th of May, 1994, when they found Black guilty of all ten counts. McPherson handed down the mandatory life sentence and gave a recommendation of a minimum 35 years to be served. As Robert Black was taken from the court, he turned to a group of policemen who had come to hear the verdict. He said, quote, 
Well done, boys. End quote. Black's appeal was heard on February 20th, 1995, arguing firstly that the summing up had been imbalanced, and secondly, and more importantly, that the similar fact evidence should not have been allowed. Every difference between the victims and the circumstances of each crime was pointed out, but leave to appeal was refused. In the immediate aftermath of the trial, Black and his multiple child murders were the subject of immediate blitz, due in no small part to the interviews that Ray Wire had conducted with Black while he awaited trial. In 1990, at their first meeting after Wire's assessment of Black, Robert had signed a consent that Wire could publish the contents of their interviews, which continued until 1993. And the contents of these interviews were published, both in a documentary that was aired days after the verdict was announced, and in the book that Wire completed with Tim Tyne, referenced throughout this story, The Murder of Childhood. In one interview with Wire, Black described to him a number of random, predatory attacks he'd committed, as well as grooming, which occurred while Black was still living in Scotland, just after he was released for his attack on the seven-year-old girl in the disused air raid shelter. Black told the psychologist that he'd carried out these sorts of attacks on 30 to 40 girls. Black would simply spot them on the street while he was working as a delivery boy. He'd get close to them, or sit next to them, and indecently assault them. Wire believed Black when he told this story, and if it was the truth, it seemed unlikely that Black had attacked only five young girls in adulthood while working as a delivery driver. And the media weren't the only ones who were scrutinising Black's history of assaulting and abusing young girls. The police, though irked to find out that Wire had been interviewing Black without their knowledge, also believed he was likely responsible for more assaults, and perhaps even more murders. They continued to try and track Robert Black's movements from the late 60s to the point of his arrest in 1990. The 1969 disappearance of April Fab was one such case. Initially, investigators thought that because Black did not yet have his driving license in 1969, and April had clearly been taken in a vehicle with her bike left on the roadside, that there was nothing to link her abduction to him. But it was later discovered that Black had gotten a motoring-related conviction in 1972, four years before he passed his test. With that discovery, it didn't seem impossible that Black might have been involved in April's death. However, there was never a conclusive link made, and April's case remains open. In the case of Christine Markham, who disappeared on her way to school in Scunthorpe in 1973, police have confirmed that Black is no longer a possible suspect. It would seem that Jeanette Tate, who went missing in 1978 while out on her bike during a paper route, was thought at this point by police to be perhaps linked in some way to Robert Black, but in 2008 it was announced by the Crown Prosecution Service that there was insufficient evidence to proceed against Black for her abduction. But Robert Black did find himself once more in court facing charges. In late 2009, news broke that Black would be in the dock again, this time in Northern Ireland, for the sexual assault and murder of nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi. The trial began in Armagh Crown Court in September of 2011. Again, the prosecution's case was a circumstantial one. Petrol receipts put Robert Black near to the small village of Ballanderry the day Jennifer was abducted and further records from PDS confirmed he had driven to Northern Ireland on a run to deliver posters on that date. The court heard that Robert Black was one of the few drivers working for the company who would venture to the North, as the troubles were in full force. Similar fact evidence was allowed, and the jury heard the details of the crimes that Black had already been convicted of, particularly that of Sarah Harper, who had also been dumped into a body of water. After a six-week trial, the jury deliberated for a full four hours and found Robert Black guilty of a fourth murder. He was sentenced to life with a minimum of 25 years to be served and was returned to prison. In January of 2016, Robert Black died of a heart attack while in Magaberry Prison in Northern Ireland. 
He was 68 years old and was in otherwise relatively good health. His death was sudden and unexpected. Days after his death, amidst reports that his remains had gone unclaimed by family, the media learned that Black was in fact weeks away from being charged with Jeanette Tate's murder. The Daily Record reported that there had been an extensive two-year investigation into the case and at the time of his death, the full evidential file was being submitted to the CPS. Detective Superintendent Paul Bergen from the Devon and Cornwall Police told the paper that he had expected to get the final charging decision in weeks rather than months. Black had lost his appeal against his conviction for Jennifer Cardi's murder, which was what had allowed the reinvestigation into Jeanette Tate's case. The appeal court had decided that Black's offending pattern was unique, and as such, it could be used to make a case that he must have also committed other similar murders. Reporting from the time also gave indications that, in the course of the reinvestigation, a number of new witnesses had been identified. Detective Superintendent Bergen said that both the police and the Tate family were devastated at the news that the charging would no longer happen. Everyone had hoped that Jeanette's case might one day be resolved and her family would find some degree of justice served. With Black's death, that seems unlikely to happen. Last year marked 40 years since Jeanette's disappearance and presumed death. Devon Live, a local news site, produced a long-form article, hosted on its own website, and a four-part podcast series called The Disappearance of Jeanette Tate. There's no telling how many crimes Robert Black actually committed. Not only was he thought to be the primary suspect in Jeanette's disappearance, because he drove throughout Britain, Ireland, and parts of continental Europe, he's been mentioned in relation to a number of cases in various countries. Because he was known to have travelled to the Netherlands, Germany and France a number of times, Black's name has been associated with up to 13 cases in those jurisdictions, as well as in the UK. In Ireland, his name is linked with the case of the missing six-year-old Mary Boyle, who disappeared in March of 1977. Mary has become the longest missing child in Ireland, and her case has caused controversy, resulting in a defamation suit and division within Mary's surviving family. If you want to hear more about that case, it's the subject of next month's Patreon-exclusive bonus content, which will be released on the 1st of December. Given that the list of Black's crimes is potentially so long, it's hard to grasp how he managed to remain free to commit them for so much time. But through the 70s and 80s, no one was looking at him. He had no close friends, and though he had blood relatives, half-siblings from his birth mother's subsequent marriage, he had no family to speak of. After Sarah Harper's abduction, a description of the white transit van spotted on her road and the shabby, balding man who was in the shop with her were sent to each police force in England, so police had his description. Police had attempted to track down people whose work put them in vans and brought them from one part of the country to another, but that was a needle in a haystack. They'd also decided to look for anyone who had been convicted of serious sexual assault, but according to some of the police who worked the investigations, Robert Black's convictions never would have made it onto a list for them to consider. Nothing he'd done in England would have landed him there. And added to all that, on a paper system, it was nigh on impossible to make sure nothing slipped through the cracks. Robert Black, as a predatory paedophile, is an outlier. And we should hope that today, Given how a modern police force records information, he would not have gotten away with crimes such as his. But often, though, as Wire points out, predators such as Black adapt their lives in such a way as to facilitate their abuses and to allow them to continue it without being caught. Black's history, early life, and the examples of his predatory behaviour remind us that society needs to treat child sex abuse seriously when it occurs and that after that, there needs to be appropriate sentencing, treatment where possible, providing resources to reduce recidivism after release and monitoring of sex offenders when they are back on our streets. As reproduced in Wire and Tate's book, 
John Stainthorpe, who worked on Sarah Harper's case, later recalled, quote, Black was an absolute cracker of a subject. How he was missed, I just don't know. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Alison Lang, Brian William Murphy, Tracy Crocker, Priscilla Sheehan, Kira Malloy and Lida Kaiser who has upped her pledge. Thank you so much guys. Your support means the absolute world to me and I appreciate it so much. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes as well as bonus content up to twice a month and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice, and Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice. Mr. Justice McPherson, and, and on the 16th of May, Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice McPherson, Mr. Justice McPherson, Mr. Justice McPherson. How does a man survive 80 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit? What's the true story behind Hurricane Katrina? Why did nine-year-old Aisha Degree pack a bag in the middle of a stormy night and disappear? And how did serial killer Samuel Little kill 80 people without the police finding out? These are the stories you won't find on other podcasts. The stories that often go unnoticed. The victims that are lost to time. Writer-producer James Hayes, sound designer and co-producer Liam Fox O'Brien, and host Carl Ellis Grant, will answer these questions in another shade of crime. A monthly true crime podcast about crimes committed by and against people of color. Because crime does not discriminate. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, or anywhere podcasts are found.